Genesis chapter 30, picking up from where we were last week, both of, so we have kind of this soap opera, right? Both of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, now both have sons. Leah did before, but the conflict in Jacob's life isn't over. His uncle and father-in-law, the scheming Laban, will now re-enter the story of Jacob. We'll look at the rest of chapter 30 and chapter 31 tonight as the burden of the text becomes focused once again on the promise, a promise that, that simply, remember, will not fail. It just won't fail. We're going to see another change in Jacob. Now, much more significant this time, by the time we get to the end of the text, as he begins to at least try to take control of his life and be responsible for himself, he was far too passive in the first half of chapter 30. And again, hindsight's 2020. We're not putting him down. We're simply, that's very obvious. He was just far too passive as his wives fought each other, hurt each other uh, for bragging rights regarding his offspring. He simply went along with whatever they wanted. But with the birth of Joseph in verse 23, something happens to him apparently. He becomes active, as we'll see here in verse 25. We haven't really seen that. Uh, leading In leading his family to leave Laban behind, Jacob has uh, been brought to the point of understanding that his scheming can only go so far. Um, even though it continues a little bit tonight, it's, it's not the same. He's going to have to rely on this God who has promised to take him back home, the same God who had opened the womb of his barren wife, Rachel. That apparently has a significant impact on Jacob. And so he moves from this scheming man who we never even really see pray to a man who realizes who God is, what God is doing, and so he's completely dependent on him. The rest of chapter 30 and 31 are extremely detailed chapters, but they don't make any explicit theological claims, really, other than what you hear Jacob saying, actually. Strange things happen in this passage. It's very strange. There's really no explanation of them at all. We're just kind of watching them like a movie, but God is there. He's watching over the text. He was watching over the, over the life of Jacob as he's surely watching over ours at every turn. He's just not always seen. Inversion is the reversal of what is normal. That, that's a way to define it for our purposes tonight. And inversion is a pattern in Scripture through which God constantly works to affirm the people that he has chosen, his own people. It marks the success of Jacob after all of his victimization, or so it seemed, at the hands of this Laban. It characterizes the rise of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it characterizes the lives of Mordecai and Esther. In that great book, that planning, that turns, it marks the beginning of our Lord Jesus in Luke 2.52. It characterizes the rise of the early church in the book of Acts. God is always at work for the sake of the future in the midst of an often tumultuous and bleak present. Jesus is making all things new. These things today, in this moment even, or these moments, this text affirms at every turn that God is at work the whole time and will not forsake Jacob or forget the promise that he made to him back in 28, 13 through 15. We, um, we live in a world where wicked people will prosper, where wicked people will usually win. Evil will win time and time again. A world where we face adversity and suffering and loss 
and difficulty and trials at every turn, all the time, but God is with us in the midst of our adversity to reverse our fortune on the earth and fulfill His promise to us. Let me pray one more time. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. We thank You for allowing us the freedom to open it here in this place and to proclaim Your name and Your glory. And so, God, would You watch over me for Your sake, for the sake of this truth and the sake of everyone who's listening, that, God, You may be glorified, Your Son may be exalted, and we may believe in Him. Please be with me. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We read chapter 30, verses 25 and 26 to start. Oh, I'm one page up, aren't I? 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. It, it was clear in the last section that God grants conception right? Because it was he who opened Rachel's barren womb. This text will show that God grants all of Jacob's wealth and no amount of scheming or deception by Laban will be able to hinder it. In fact, Laban will be forced to recognize that his wealth comes from his association with Jacob, all of which Laban thought was his doing and the result of his scheming and his advantages. But as we see here, the moment Joseph is born, Jacob begins to take leadership, active leadership of his family. He wants to be dismissed from his service to Laban, this 14-year commitment he had made, take his family, return to his homeland. And as you'll notice here, Laban Laban is a dealer. He ignores his request and, and just offers him ongoing payment for his work. Look at 27. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. So Laban says he found out that Jacob is responsible for his wealth because he had been associated with him by divination. This may be true. It probably isn't. And, and, and the reason I say that is that that's how he found out. I think Laban is probably trying to save face here and continue to look smart or to look powerful or important. Divination was the attempt to find out information through the use of an object. Uh, arrows would be used. The livers of animals would be used or a medium would be used. Divination is condemned by God in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. So it's hard to imagine that God would have allowed Laban to find out this way about Jacob. Uh, it's, it's possible. You know, I mean, certainly God could have done that. God is not unjust in anything he does. But it would have been very strange. Either way, Laban wants Jacob to stay because he realizes he's prospered by being associated with him. Again, I think that more than likely, Laban is trying to save some face here and and just say, you know, uh, I found out by divination that I prosper because of you. It couldn't have anything to do with the fact that you break your back working and I don't do anything. Right. So it is strange. But Jacob says in verse 29, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when shall I provide for my own household? So you can understand, of course, why Laban would want Jacob to stay. He didn't have much before, apparently, and now he does. But it's time for Jacob to provide for his own family, make his own way. We pick it up in 31. He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pastor your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today. 
removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs if found with me shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, this guy, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering place where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, The man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. What in the world was that all about? It's such a strange thing. Once once Jacob knew that it was time for him to make his own way, he comes up with a plan. If Laban keeps to that plan, Jacob will stay with him. But Jacob knows how deceptive Laban is. They have history by now. So he comes up with a plan that will hopefully keep Laban from being able to swindle him out of his real earnings. The plan uh, relates to Jacob's flock, or to, or to Laban's flock, sorry. Jacob is going to, uh, going to go through all the flocks, take out every speckled and spotted sheep and goat, as well as the black lambs, so that any white sheep or goats that are found in Jacob's flock would be considered stolen. That's so there will be this clear division between Laban's flocks and Jacob's flocks. Apparently, sheep are usually white, Goats are um, black or dark brown, which means Jacob is requesting the irregular ones from Laban's flocks. A shepherd's wages were normally about 20% of the flock, but the speckled portion usually wouldn't be a high percentage of the flock at all. So it seems like Jacob is an idiot, and this is really going to turn out well for Laban. So, of course, he agrees to it immediately. Like, fine, that sounds perfect, that sounds great. Even though the percentages are in Laban's favor, though, meaning he's going to have more, he still tries to hedge his bet a little more. On the very same day that he made the agreement with Jacob, he takes out of his flocks all the male and female goats that were speckled in all the black lambs. He puts them under the charge of his sons and puts three days between he and Jacob, making sure, so he thinks, that Jacob's percentage of the flock will be very low and he'll have the advantage. But the schemer is being schemed by another schemer, right? Jacob also has a plan. But I want you, I, I want us to realize how flimsy of a plan this is, okay? And, and I, th- I think that's important. He takes fresh sticks from certain trees, and this isn't going to get any clearer when I explain it, okay? And he peels white streaks in them or exposes the white of the sticks by peeling white streaks in them. He puts those in front of the place where the livestock come for water. It's also where they breed. 
Again, this is very strange. The text makes no comment on it. But the idea is that the, that they had is that if flocks bred in front of peeled sticks, they'll produce striped, speckled, and spotted younglings. According to their agreement, all of those will belong to Jacob. He would separate these animals from the rest of the flock and keep them separate. He would also use only the peeled sticks when stronger animals came to breed, which he believed would ensure that his animals were stronger animals and Laban's were weaker. By doing this, Jacob greatly increased the size of his flock. It it comes out that more are breeding like what Jacob said, when originally that would have been a very small percentage of the flock. What does all this mean? Well, it means that immediately in the passage, Jacob himself is still trying to get ahead based on his own planning and scheming, although now you can understand it to some degree because of who Laban is. So it's not like he's a villain here. But he is trying to get ahead based on his own plan, but it's a very fragile plan. It's dependent on this apparent cultural idea that that what sheep bred in front of their babies would turn out to look like. And it works. It works. It's an amazing thing. It also, and again, Jacob obviously believed in this too. Again, the Bible doesn't teach that that's the case, but this culture, these people accepted it as reliable. And every time it worked. So somebody's behind the scenes here working things in Jacob's favor. He's trying to increase his flocks on his own. But the true source of his success, because he is winning, as we read in verse 43, will be revealed later. And of course, we know what's going on. But in the moment, they didn't. As we begin chapter 31, Jacob is developing even more as a character. Listen here to where he gives credit for his success. We haven't seen this really before. Pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. (laughs) Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, And if he said, meaning Laban, the stripe shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. What mercy. Beloved, that's grace. That's grace. Why why is God concerned that Jacob has been cheated? The man is a cheater. Remember that. Think about what he did to his older brother and to his dad. And God intervenes for him because he's being cheated. Verse Verse 13. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. 
Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So it becomes apparent to Jacob that Laban no longer has any affection for him, right? He's not his boy anymore because the tide has turned. Jacob has gotten very wealthy due to his success with the flocks and with land that once belonged to Laban. God appears in the text in verse 3, tells Jacob to return to his homeland, the land of his fathers, the land, remember, God promised he would bring him back to. Jacob calls his wives to him, Rachel and Leah anyway, tells them why they have to leave. As he explains it to them, it becomes clear that God is the one who is truly responsible for all of Jacob's wealth and success. God protected Jacob from Laban's deceit. And he finally, for the first time we're seeing, tells his wives what their dad is like. They apparently were seeing it anyway, how he had cheated him, changed his wages ten times. The odds were always stacked against Jacob. It never looked like Jacob was in any advantage any good position, it never looked like he could win, much less that he actually was winning the whole time. It never looked like that for a moment. And Jacob finally acknowledges that God is the true source of his wealth. It's not his scheming. It's not his planning. Notice here, Jacob doesn't brag or gloat to his wives about how he concocted this plan that he was able to get over on Laban. You don't see that at all. He acknowledges that God did this. God caused the flock to breed to his advantage through Jacob's plan by inverting whatever Laban said would happen. It was God who took away Laban's livestock, gave them to Jacob. That's confirmed in the response of his wives who realized also that this is true. They too feel estranged from Laban. Their own dad had treated them as foreigners. He deceived them. He'd taken from them. He didn't leave them any inheritance. They admit that God had taken wealth away from Laban and given it to them and their children. And so they agree with Jacob that he should do what God has told him to do. So they too are placing faith in Jacob's God. They're willing to go back with him to the land of his fathers, which was, a, again, a major deal in this culture to leave your family behind. But Jacob is a man of faith here. He's no longer passive. He doesn't reference his own scheming. And he finally testifies. Now, Remember this in the story of Abraham's family. Jacob has never done this yet. He, when he first met Laban in chapter 29, remember when the servant met Laban, there's this long text of the servant telling him exactly what had happened, what God had done. Jacob did none of that. Remember, he didn't testify to anything. But here he tells the whole story of this event with their father to his wives in verses 4 to 16. He's taking charge of his family. He wants to separate from Laban since God told him, return to your own land. But he's still fearful of Laban. Pick it up in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Thanks. (laughs) He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. 
When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob left for home with his family while Laban was away shearing sheep. So he tricks Laban one more time by not telling him what his plan was and by leaving secretly. Jacob and his family don't yet fully trust in the Lord to protect them and to bless them. And they're, they're apprehensive in some or to some degree. Rachel steals her dad's household gods. So apparently these are little figures, little statues, or small enough that you could fit them in a camel's saddle. Why did she take them? Maybe because they were made with costly metals. They were worth something, and Rachel thought she could sell them for some money since Laban hadn't given her and Leah their inheritance. Or maybe because his gift to them in marriage was so cheap, according to the cultural custom. But Jacob has a three-day head start. Before Laban hears, hey, Jacob and all the, the, you know, your, your daughters, the whole, they've all left. So Laban and his people go after them for seven days, finally overtake them in the hill country of Gilead, and God is in all of it, right? Look at verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. That's an amazing thing. <laughs> Don't say anything. Clown. This is what it sounds like. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? You notice how often in the story people don't realize what they are. They, they just People are always shocked when people treat them poorly, even though they've treated people poorly. It's just an amazing thing. Why did you flee secretly, verse 27, and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Liar, yes. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Too late. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my God's? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So, so there's, there's some major tension here. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, Bilhah and Zilpah, his other wives. But he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me, or way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. I think this is great. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household gods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. That's how long it's been. Six beyond the 14 he agreed to. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. 
I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for their children whom they have born. God protects Jacob here from any more deception by Laban. He's making sure there will be a proper separation between the two men. Laban finally, or Laban confronts Jacob for leaving secretly, right? Not giving him the chance to say goodbye to his daughters. He warns Jacob that he could do him great harm, but Jacob's God, so Laban calls him the God of your father in verse 29, had warned Laban not to say anything good or bad to him. Then in verse 30, Laban accuses him for stealing his household gods. Jacob tells him that he had left in secret because he thought he would have taken Leah and Rachel away from him by force. Why wouldn't he think that? All right, consider how Laban spoke in verse 43. Right, he's still like just completely self-deceived. How many times had Laban deceived Jacob? So Jacob, of course, denies that anyone in his family would have stolen his household gods. He didn't know that Rachel had taken them. But God protects Jacob's family again. How does he do it? Through Rachel's deceit of Laban the deceiver. Right? There's so much to reckon with in the Bible. The gods were hidden in a camel's saddle in Rachel's tent. She sat on them. She's sitting on them when he comes in. So the scene is kind of funny. He pops into the tent. She's sitting. What? Right? What, Dad? She says, well, you know, he... Get up so I can look. Well, I, I can't get up. It's her time of the month. Laban doesn't want anything to do with that. So he basically, the theft goes uncovered. Jacob has had enough of Laban and his accusations. Right? He maybe comes in, you know, he's tired of him berating his wives, whatever it is. And he tells him off finally in verses 36 to 42. All these years I worked for you, you deceived me. Right, I worked hard in the heat of the day. I worked in the cold of the night. I went without sleep to take care of your flocks, Laban. When an animal was taken from the flock or lost, Jacob bore the cost for that. Right, For 20 years he served Laban. And even though Laban kept deceiving him and changing the terms of their agreement, all that time, remember, in the midst of that, when would Jacob have ever thought that God was working things in his favor? When would he have ever thought that he was coming out on top the whole time, that he was the blessed one, that he was the preserved one, that he was the favored one. It never looked that way, ever. It looked exactly like the opposite. Laban's hands are finally tied, right? He realizes, I I can't, what can I do? This man's God appears to me in a dream. So he makes a covenant with Jacob. Look at verse 44. Pick it up there. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Well, now you want to get serious, Laban, after 20 years, right? And let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galead and Mitzvah, for he said, The Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. 
If you oppress my, that, that's again, that's not for affection. That's not may he take care of you. And this is may the Lord bring justice on either one of us if we break this covenant when we're apart from each other. If you verse fifty, Laban says, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And he will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. So they gather a heap of stones as a witness to their agreement, which included the fact that the Lord would watch each of them so that they would keep the terms of their agreement. Jacob is not to oppress his daughters or take any more wives. Laban promises you won't cross the boundary made by this heap of stones in order to do Jacob any harm. You can hear the loyalties in their agreement when Laban says that the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us in verse 53. He isn't equating Nahor's God with Abraham's. He's showing that the families have different deities to give respect to. Laban probably used the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, because he had appeared to him in a dream. But Jacob uses the phrase, the fear of Isaac. He uses it twice in this passage when speaking of the God of my father, the God of Abraham. This can be translated, the awesome one of Isaac, the God who inspires fear and dread. These types of things are all these men had to go on. There's, there's no Bible in their day. That There are no preachers. Jacob might have used that name for God to warn Laban that his God is not to be trifled with, but also to remember the promises that had been passed down from Abraham to his father Isaac. But when Jacob swears by his name, he is finally affirming that this is his God. And Jacob and Laban depart from one another in peace. In verse 55, early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. And beloved, not one single time in the story of Jacob, not one time has God broken the promise that he made to him back in 28, 20 through 22. So, the story is a little convoluted, but when we pull back and see, or not when we pull back and see God as the main character, do, do we realize as God's creation in this world, that prosperity for anyone is ultimately in the hand of Almighty God. That He is not just the God who takes away. He is also the God who gives. God is not only the source of prosperity for Jacob, but also for Laban. That, that's part of the point the story is making. Even though it always seems like Laban has the upper hand, all through Jacob's middle years, that Jacob is just being victimized and used, Laban is dependent on Jacob for his wealth. If Jacob wasn't there, Laban does not have it in him to gain any prosperity. And Jacob is dependent on God. Do you think Laban ever thought, think Laban ever thought that Jacob was the blessed one? That he was the one that was coming out ahead all the time. Laban thought Jacob was dependent on him. And he was just free to use that man however he wanted. But God was inverting that all along. God was at work in this spotted, speckled, and striped plan. God was doing it. God blessed 
Jacob. God prospered Jacob through that, through some cultural belief that it matters what sheep breed close to or see while they're breeding. We're talking about sheep here. God was inverting that. Jacob's success wasn't coming from his own machinations or magic. It was coming from the watchfulness of God over his word and his promise. You know how it is with folklore. It doesn't matter. Once something's embedded in a culture, it doesn't matter how often it doesn't work. If people believe it, they believe it, right? Don't You don't want a black cat to cross your path. How, how many times have black cats crossed our paths? We didn't have seven years of bad. Nobody's tracking it. Like, all right, I'm on my seventh year. Finally, I'll be free from that cat that ran across me or a broken mirror, whatever these things are. It's... But we depend, we, we believe these things. But that's not where his success was coming from. It was coming from the watchfulness of God over his word and his promise to Jacob. God does not sit passively behind the scenes of our lives, happening to make lemonade out of the lemons we receive. Beloved, that's not what is going on in our world. He doesn't just come in after the fact. He doesn't just come in once we click our heels together three times, right? You've had it in you all along, Dorothy. Right? It's His hands are in the mess of this world, turning what we make into what he desires. This was the only hope for Jacob's survival, wasn't it? We always depend on the promise, beloved, in order to be okay. And the promise always comes through. Always. When we read stories like like this, the question we want to ask when we walk out of it is, what can stop God? What can stop His purpose, His promise in my life? What can be done? Right? He'll just invert whatever's going on and turn it for our favor in the end. God is at work to reorder the future away from what we are making. Beloved, it is a biblical principle that you reap what you sow. But you and I won't. You and I will reap what Jesus has sown. It's inverted for you and I, beloved. God is at work to reorder the future away from what we're making, to undo the math so that it doesn't add up, so that it's not even, so that it's not clean. Right? Whether we're making the mess or the world is making the mess, God is going to invert it. We sow thorns, the world sows thorns, God brings up flowers. That's the pattern we spoke of. And if it doesn't happen in the immediate, it happening in the immediate moment in lives like Jacob's is a testimony not to the fact that we will always come out on top in every situation in our lives, but that we will come out on top in the end when all is said and done, when it matters the most. It's not like from here, Jacob's life was perfect. It was, it was never perfect. It was never easy or pleasant. What matters is that God was not turning his back on this man. The pattern we spoke of Jacob David, all the things that were against David all the time. Esther and Mordecai, you remember that great story. My goodness, they hang Haman on the gallows he made to hang Mordecai on. This is what God does. This is what God does. The scheme of Laban was the means by which Jacob became rich. Uh, All the spotted ones will be yours, Jacob. And God makes them bear all spotted sheep, right? He just, this is what he does. We're learning about his character here. Again, not that... That there's like God is like an amulet, and if you trust Him, everything works out good and turns in your favor. The point here is for eternity. 
mainly. Because we have math, we have reaped things. God is going to undo, he's going to overcome those things. This is how God works all things together for the good of his people. right? Not just as a spectator who comes in after the fact with magic, but as a designer who does his thing and what we think is our thing. I mean, how does, think about this for a minute. How does the book of Genesis end? And I don't want to say too much because I don't want to ruin the sermon for Genesis 50. But how does Genesis end? Is what we've been saying that as a designer, God is at work doing his thing and what we think is our thing. That's precisely what Joseph, Jacob's son, this little Joseph that was born, will say later to his scheming brothers in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is how the book of Genesis ends. This is the message it leaves you with, is inversion. You meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. Think about that sentence. In the evil you brothers were doing, you meant to do evil for me. In the evil you brothers were doing, God meant to do good for me. And God wins. That's the, that's the message of this book. They have been plotting and planning against God since the garden. And all God keeps doing is turning it on its head and blessing and showing mercy. That's all he does. What scheme of man is not controlled by the sovereignty of God? How can the Christian ever lose hope if this is true, beloved? In what situation could you ever say, well, it's over. It's over. The future's set. There's nothing I can do. In 31.3, God called Jacob out of Laban's land and back to his own. All the way back then, and in spite of all the drama in between, in verse 55, that is precisely where Jacob is headed. It's where he's going to go, finally free from the scheming of Laban. It just took a few years, right? What's 20 years against the backdrop of eternity? If we could learn, if I could learn that perspective, what is, what is 80 years against the backdrop of eternity? Just like God called Abraham in 12.1, God calls Jacob out of where he is to a new land. The God of plan and promise calls us from this to that through this world, not outside of it. You realize that God doesn't take us out of the world, bring us around it so we miss all of it, and then drop us victorious in at the end. That's not the way it works. He calls. That's who he is in this passage. He calls, but he calls through, right? Through, not, not around. It, it's in all these things in Romans. In all these things we are more than conquerors. Not by avoiding them. In them. Right, Because God is reckoning things, looking back at all of it from the standpoint of His Son's victory for you and I. God is proving the power of His Word in Genesis through this call and of His promise in Genesis through His constant deliverance of people who have no hope. That's all God is in this passage. He's the God whose call makes things happen, whose Word prevails not just over the Word of Laban, but in the prosperity and scheming of Laban. God is inverting that for Jacob's sake, for his word's sake, so that what is expected is not what happens, which means it is also for our sake, beloved, this story. It looked like Jacob was just making things work time and time again, just lucky, right? Found his kin right away, found his wives, made some money, got some sons, 
And yet when he finally begins to really speak in 31, 4 through 16, all of it is made clear for him as he professes God. It's God. Jacob stands in the narrative of Genesis to remind Israel, as they would have read it, to remind us that his whole life was kept and valued by God who worked inversion for the sake of his promise. That's the pattern. That's what we should expect as we read. We should not expect that there's a way around the world to God's blessing. Right? It's not the way it works. It always seems to be going this way in our lives. And it's actually going this way. Right? It, it's, it's, I, I don't, I, I read in a, uh, preaching book that you should never use yourself for your illustrations that much. I don't, I don't, so I, I don't mean to do that all the time. I just, when I think back on, on the, on the course of my life and how I view being here, I never thought where I was before that I would be here. I just, I never thought that was the path, that this would be where we would go and want to spend our lives. Not because I had some issue with West Virginia or something. That's not what I mean. I just never thought when we moved to California that we were probably moving there so that we could get here. I just, I never thought that was the way. I never thought that was the plan. Now it's like, oh, I, I see what was going on. I see, but in the middle of it, I thought God hated me. I thought he was done with me. I mean, I, I really did. I thought, what are you doing? And I, you know how many times in my life I've thought that? And God just keeps, it, it's just, but again, not around mess, but in it, through it. It always seems to be going one way in the world. Our vision is so limited. And what the Bible shows you again is that, no, 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 it's actually going this way. You just can't see it. When Israel left Egypt, what did they do? They plundered Egypt. That's our money. I love that. That's Those things are ours. We're going to take those things. We've worked for you for how many hundreds of years now? You've killed our children. We'll take that. That's ours. That's, that's the pattern. All of Egypt's wealth became Israel's. And beloved, we, we will inherit the world. Psalm 37, 22, Matthew 5, 5. There's even talk of that in Isaiah 61, I believe, or 60, where all the nations will... will Bring their wealth. Just the world that got rich on its rebellion will leave all of it behind to be remade in the new heavens and the new earth for the glory of God and joy of his saints and his son. Inversion, beloved. Not even Laban can deny it, can he? Just like Israel from Egypt, Jacob didn't leave the land of Laban empty-handed, and it wasn't a concession. It was complete victory, beloved. It was complete victory for Jacob. All the blessings, all the prosperity, and wealth of Jacob are from the hand of God. All of it. The money, the flocks, the daughters, all of it. Again, not in spite of Laban's scheming, but through Laban's scheming. God did all this. When are you and I then ever without hope? When are we not ever actually safe in this world? Notice that Jacob thanks Laban at the end of all these years for nothing. Nothing. He thanks God who gave him everything. Right? Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord on our side, then they would have swallowed us up alive. That's echoing Jacob in Genesis 31. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Beloved, he is on our side. On your side. God takes sides. In this world. 
We have no idea the depths at which God is currently at work in all these things to turn all these things in our favor one day. Take heart, child of God. Right? The one who left home as an empty-handed fugitive returns with wealth and wives and children and livestock because of this God. One day when you and I finally journey home to our homeland, to which we've never been, but calls to us somehow, we'll cross that river to that golden shore having nothing and possessing everything. An empty-handed fugitive, a barren mother, an unloved mother, all blessed, all cared for, all safe, all of them dependent on the one that Walter Brueggemann calls, from whom I got this title, the effective inverter, right? As we close tonight, beloved, think about how this family is a microcosm of you and I in this world as the church, this, this household, this family, personally, corporately, all of them, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, even Laban. Everybody in the text is after the same thing. Everyone is trying to secure their future. You ever notice that's the impetus of your life, what's coming. Do what you're doing today for what's coming, for what will be in the future. A legacy, head yourself in, whatever it is. We know the future's coming. They knew the future's coming. The problem is, is that none of us can control it. None of us can stop it. None of them know exactly what they needed to do to get ready for it. We don't either. They're just like every husband, every wife, every mom and dad, every child, every teenager on the planet. All this conflict we're involved in to shape our futures, to gain the advantages, to be safe, to be wealthy, to be ready, to come out ahead. We're all desperate to control things. We know we don't have the power to control anything, but we can't help ourselves for trying. It's either wrong colored sheep or misplaced gods or missing heirs or tanked mutual funds or plunging stocks or wayward children or a lost job. It may just seem like the world is fixed against us. Nothing can be done. We're doomed to lose. Businesses are closing all around us. Theaters are closing. Some schools are closing or will be closing. Will resources run out? Will cash stop being produced? Will the government take over? Will we lose our rights? What about our retirements? What about our kids? Right? Almost everyone I talk to with children, you know, young children right now, everybody has the same worry. I'm worried what kind of world my kids are going to inherit. It's terrifying. I don't know what the world is going to be like when my kids are my age. I don't know. I don't know if we'll be here or not. There's a sense of dread about the way of things and what the way of things today means for the future. When you read Genesis, you have to ask, though, yeah, but who knows what surprises God is working to give? Who knows? Because if it's not in this life, it'll be better in the next one. We believe that, right? I mean, we believe that a new world is coming. The future belongs to God tonight. You remember that. It belonged to Him last night. It'll belong to Him tomorrow night. And He is your God. You are called by His name, beloved. You're His child. Look to the cross. Look to the cross because 
on just the other side of the worst evil, the greatest tragedy, the darkest moment of human history, is an empty tomb. You talk about inversion. You kill, I make alive. The future will be shaped precisely the way that God has promised, and it doesn't matter what happens in between. And he isn't just going to show up at the end and make it right. He's working in all of it. It's all his design. All of it. The future will be shaped precisely the way God says it will be. My dad used to say all the time, I think he got it from someone else, but he would always say in his messages, I read the back of the book and we win. And we do. And no human scheme or device can change his plan or rearrange his timing. So let the nations rage. They do it all in vain. Our God laughs with derision at those who think they can derail him or his plan. So rest in him tonight, beloved. It's not just a passing thing to say. It's a thing to be learned, and I haven't learned it yet, but we're learning it together. Rest in him tonight. The pattern of inversion is set in the word and in the world for us, and Jesus lives and Jesus reigns, and you and I belong to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we look to you. We don't know what to make of the future anymore. Not like we ever did, but it seems less so now. But Father, you are not moved. You are not surprised. You are not afraid. So Lord, shelter us, cover us with your wings. Cover us with your wings. We need you, Father. May we hear the brush of those wings. May we hear the shuffle of angels' feet. May we remember that you are with us and you will not leave or forsake us, whether we are a child or a teenager or a young adult or a middle adult or an older adult. May we know that you are with us and you are at work in our lives for your name's sake, for our eternal good. Let us take refuge in you. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.